We affirm seven principles as a Unitarian Universalist congregation, and Christy shared one with us. The first, we'll be hearing about at least another today. The topic really touches on all of them. But I was thinking particularly as I prepared my remarks of the fifth. The right of conscience and the use of the democratic process in our congregations and in society at large. Of the principles, this one always seemed kind of obvious to me. It's a given, right? It's the minimum. And didn't really seem in my naivete to need saying. But clearly that was a product of my own privilege, I've come to realize. Because the right to vote, even in this country, has always been given more lip service than actual fulfillment. Unfortunately, that is still true, which is why I'm so excited about the action that has already been taking place this morning and that has been enabled by these four powerhouses working with, with this service. Now, Voting is just a small part of the democratic process, and the right of conscience is broader and deeper still than the democratic process as a whole. But the vote is a good place to start because it's the minimum. The ability to be one voice among a few hundred, as in this congregation, or a few hundred million in our, in our uh, country, as we choose our direction and our representatives, that's the most basic and necessary provision of that expression of freedom that we call democracy. And it is its foundation. So I want to do just a little experiment that was uh, quite telling at, um, at 9.30, and I'm sure it will be again. Will you raise your hand if you are eligible to vote in this country? And just keep it up for a few, few seconds so everybody can look around and see. OK, this is everyone who's an eligible voter. It's just about everybody here. Oh, me too. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Now, um, please listen to this list and see, you can put your hands down. Listen to this list and see if you meet all the criteria. Are you male, 21 years old, a U.S. citizen, white, not how you define it, but by this definition, all of your ancestors are from Europe, and an owner of real estate? Okay, if all of those things are true for you, if you meet all those requirements, please raise your hand. Look around. If this were 1789, that's who would get to make the decisions in our new free country. I can already see um, over here that I think it might be sowing some marital discord. Because uh, you are terrific folks. You are terrific folks, those of you who just raised your hand. I mean, really, if I had to entrust my, my rights and the well-being of my country to anybody, I'm glad, I'm glad it's you. But I know you would be the first to say that you shouldn't get to decide for your, your spouse, your parents, your, uh, your neighbors, for all the other people here, how we are going to conduct ourselves, yes? Is that freedom, what we just saw? Or is it privilege extended? as Billy Bragg puts it in the quote that's printed on our order of service, the few ruling over the many. That's just a privilege, and as we as, encompass a few more people, say, okay, you can vote too. Okay, now you're, a, now you're a citizen when you weren't before, now you can vote. That's not really still freedom. 
unless enjoyed by one and all. I'll set aside questions for this service about how old one should be and how long it should take to naturalize as a citizen um, before one can vote. Um, but certainly, I'm sure we can agree that those criteria are way too restrictive. I have always loved to vote. Don't you? The air of a polling place, whether it's a school cafeteria or King Plaza, it smells like freedom to me. I feel freedom as I bounce out of there, having done my democratic duty and made my voice heard. That's how it used to feel when I naively thought that the right to vote had been won in this country, that every adult who wished to vote could do so. But when others are arbitrarily, or worse, deliberately prevented from entering into those places, then it doesn't feel like freedom anymore that we're practicing. It's oppression. And the power that we exercise is not power with, power alongside other free citizens, but power over others. That's not what I signed up for. It's such a perversion of the glorious dream that we, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, that we take these actions. How can the union be closer to perfect if such a tiny minority of the adults living in this country have the power of self-determination and everybody else lacks it? How can we establish justice and any hope for domestic tranquility? I'm looking at you too. <laughs> when the few unjustly empowered are imposing a coerced order upon the many and disenfranchised. What a hollow parody of common defense when the polling booth itself is a war-torn territory with imperial soldiers fiercely defending it from the rightful, peaceful inhabitants. It is not the general welfare that's promoted in such a system, but the advantage of some at the expense of the rest. And always in the history of our country, despite these lovely words, we have striven to secure the blessings of liberty without extending them to one and all. And so the ourselves, the securing the blessings of liberty to ourselves, that ourselves has not been the people, but an elite few. The white, male, European, and propertied, securing blessings for themselves and their posterity, their descendants, who by no coincidence at all, continue to hold an unearned share of power and to profit from that domination seven generations later. And yet, the great words also ring down the years, and they inspire us to make them live, to make them more than words, more than a dream, for us to breathe life into them fully for the first time. That's what we're doing here today. It has been a long story of struggle, and brave and good people show us the way. As Ai Weiwei once said, the artist and activist who spent many years under house arrest in his native land of China, when you constrain freedom, freedom will take flight and land on a windowsill.
freedom has a way of making itself felt with the passion, the hard work, the sacrifice of people who really believe in those idealistic words. And so gradually, state by state, the requirement to own property before one could vote was dropped. Gradually, free black people were allowed to vote in every state where they were free, not just a few, as in 1789, if they were male. Native Americans, the people who were here for thousands of years before a European ship first anchored off on American coast, fought and argued and sought equality until finally in 1924, they were deemed citizens of the United States. But that wasn't all it took. It took another generation for the right of these citizens to vote in their nation's elections to be recognized by the Supreme Court. And even then, many states persisted in denying it. And so it was in 1962 that Native Americans finally won the right to vote in every state. The previous year, 1961, Washington, D.C. residents won the ability to vote for president and vice president. And so they cast their first such votes in the 1964 election. Women, as you probably know, received the vote in 1920, and the new amendment made no mention of race, but as we will see, white women were extended a freedom that was denied to other women and still continues to be too often. Once all of these things, these barriers were cleared away, the legal barriers saying that some people simply were not citizens, were not even fully human. When the voting age had been lowered to 18, still those who wanted to keep some rightful voters from the polls invented new machinery, such as poll taxes. They were eventually ruled unconstitutional and then eventually actually taken off the books, but in the meantime, Generations were disenfranchised. In place of poll taxes, or at the same time, we had tests of citizenship. That sounds reasonable enough. People should know a certain amount about the country before they are allowed to vote in it. But of course, the tests were not administered equally, not to everybody, and not by everybody. They were administered by white people, often the most white supremacists, members of the Ku Klux Klan and others who did not want any black people in their counties to vote, and they could arbitrarily say, you failed this test. By the way, it's really worth looking one up online and seeing how you do. All of these were flimsy excuses to keep the people from exercising their right to vote, and yet they have been effective, and always, all along the way, there has been terrorism, lynchings, beatings, bombings, threats, that if you exercise your right to vote, you or the ones you love or the people who look like you may be killed, will be punished. Those who come to help you exercise that right, they too will be punished. So the Unitarian minister, James Reeb, who heeded the call to go to Selma and help register people to vote, 
was murdered there, his murderer, the chief among the group of people who killed him, was never prosecuted and died a free man. I say this history because the suppression of millions, millions of eligible voters' rights continues today. Many Native Americans, for example, do not have traditional street addresses, especially if they live on reservations, and the current format of registration forms often doesn't incorporate the kind of address used on reservations. You could call that a bureaucratic glitch, except that when people ask to have it changed, hmm, it's not happening. States with voter ID laws often do not accept tribal IDs as a valid form of identification. So in North Dakota, for example, where there's quite a high percentage of Native American residents, a 2017 voter ID law requires a physical address to vote and the state failed to provide a physical address to many Native Americans. Just like that, and completely legally, people are kept from their legal rights. One can press in the courts and reverse it. That takes time and money and determination. The people of Washington, D.C. still don't have a vote in Congress, although by their numbers they should have a representative in, their in the House and two in the Senate. The city, I'm sure I don't have to remind you, is majority black. The three million people of Puerto Rico ought to have six representatives in the House and two senators. They have none. They can't even vote for president. And the vast majority, of course, are Latino. And quite recently, in Shelby County versus Holder in 2013, the Supreme Court, using incorrect data, deemed that counties and states that had had to take particular steps to provide access for voting, this was called pre-clearance by the Attorney General, based on their history of discrimination, were being unjustly treated. It was unconstitutional the court ruled, to treat them as if they had not changed since the 1965 Voting Rights Act was passed. And the court cited as evidence false statistics purporting to show that the gap between white and black voter registrations was closing. Hours after the decision, hours after the decision was declared, two states enacted restrictive voting measures that had not been pre-cleared. They had just been queued up and waiting for the permission to go, and they got it. Within a couple months, many other states had taken action to enact laws that would have had to pass pre-clearance until that decision. Lawsuits are still pending. Maybe some of them will be won. But the Voting Rights Act of 1965 is effectively gutted. In the recent race for governor in Georgia, Stacey Abrams, an African-American woman, ran against Brian Kemp, a white man who was Secretary of State and did not recuse himself from his authority to guarantee free and fair elections during the race. Far from it. He exploited his position to the full. And so polling places were closed, disproportionately in largely black districts. Voters were purged from the rolls without justification, often without being informed. People who requested absentee ballots never received them or received them at a different address than they requested. And so they might be away at school, never get that ballot in time to actually cast their vote. 
while most mostly white and most middle-class districts had more voting machines than they needed. In many minority districts and poor districts, there were insufficient machines and people waited in line for many hours, sacrificing half a workday or more if they could. If their jobs were on the line, which of course they're much more likely to be, if you're an hourly employee, if you don't have a position of authority in your job, if you don't get sick days and vacation days, they just gave up, and their vote was not counted. Making sure there are long lines at the polling place is one of the best ways to make sure a lot of the voters just go home. By the way, the um, white folks dismantling white supremacy group watched, um, learned a lot about it, this exact situation um, by watching the movie Suppressed. It's a short documentary, and I strongly recommend it if you have not seen it. Suppressed, the fight to vote. The lack of equality, the lack of freedom that we demonstrated with our show of hands a little while ago, they have not been redressed, not entirely. There's a Jewish holiday coming up a week from tomorrow called Purim. I can summarize it two ways. The briefest way is by the old joke said to apply to most Jewish holidays. What happened is, they tried to kill us, they failed, let's eat. <laughs> Purim is one such story, but I'll tell you the slightly longer version. It is related in the very short chapter of, uh, the very short book of Esther, um, which is an unusual book of the Bible. Not only is it very short, it gets its own little scroll, um, sort of like a tiny mini Torah scroll, like a few other books of the Bible do. Um, it has no mention at all of the word God, the only book in the Bible that does not. Um, instead, it tells of a secular, highly political, and disturbingly contemporary occurrence in long ago Persia. Esther was secretly Jewish there in Persia and newly queen of the king, Ahasuerus. You might have heard of him by the name Xerxes. When I was a kid, he always showed up in the ABC books, you know, he has an X. There's King Xerxes. Ahasuerus, under the guidance of his grand vizier Haman, is making his kingdom more and more repressive and particularly threatening the freedom and the lives of the country's Jewish minority. Then the text says, then Esther sent a message to her cousin Mordecai, who lived outside the palace, saying, all the king's servants and the, peoples of, the, and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law. All alike are to be put to death. Only if the king holds out the golden scepter to someone may that person live. I myself have not been called to come to the king for 30 days. So she's worried. She wants to approach the king and tell him that she is being threatened by these policies. But he hasn't asked to see her for an entire month and it is a crime for her to even approach him without being summoned. 
The text tells us that Mordecai replied to his cousin, do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter, but you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. What a thing to say. Perhaps the reason that you have this position of power, slight advantage though it is, given that the king can still have you killed with a gesture or a lack of a gesture, perhaps you have that advantage precisely because your power is needed right now to liberate your people. Esther was a brave woman. She asked her cousin to lead the community in fasting and praying for her, and she resolved, I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. I think of stories like this when I think about the challenges of making a better country and a better world today. I don't need to take my life into my hands to help expand freedom in my country, to speak up for those who are being shut out, who are at risk. It challenges us to have just a fragment of the courage that this legendary queen showed. So closer to our own time and place, Stacey Abrams knew that the race between her and Brian Kemp, the race between the voters who wanted her as their governor and those who wanted Kemp as theirs, had been a rigged contest. And so she gave a non-concession speech, and she also then started Fair Fight, an organization to fight back against voter suppression in Georgia and elsewhere. In her response to the, to the election, she called on the best in us to make things right at last. And she said, we are a mighty nation because we embedded in our national experiment the chance to fix what is broken, to call out what is faltered, to demand fairness wherever it can be found. Our fight to count every vote is not about me, it is about us. It's about the democracy we share and our responsibility to preserve our way of life our democracy, because voting is a right and not a privilege. These are hard times in which we live. Perhaps the next generation will look back and say that was the moment. That was the moment when tyranny ended up being unopposed by any of the institutions meant to keep the democracy safe and free. Or perhaps that was the moment when challenged, people responded and recognized that they needed to act. These people, Queen Esther, Ai Weiwei, Stacey Abrams, they are our prophets. Those whose attempts to vote, just to vote, have been met with ridicule and weaponized bureaucracy and threats and lynching. They risked far more than most of us have to do. Whether it is risky or not, we must act 
for our rights, for our beloved and hurting country, for our dream of a government by the people, of the people, for the people, we can do no less. And perhaps, as Mordecai tells his cousin, perhaps we were made for a time, for such a time as this. No, there's no perhaps about it. Look at our faith. Look at the founding document, those, un, those inspiring words of our country. Our faith that puts freedom at its core and our country that speaks in such grand words of freedom and justice and equality for everybody. We were made for such a time as this. So let us seize our time.